Matthew chapter 6. We have been here in the Lord's Prayer or the Model Prayer or in Our Father, uh, whatever uh, you may call it. Uh, I would choose to call it the Model Prayer. And uh, I want to read verses 9 through 13. This is uh, the, the prayer that many in this room know, have memorized, and are very familiar with. But Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse number 9, he says this, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This morning we actually get to cover all of verse number 10, this thought of thy kingdom come, and then Jesus elaborates a little bit on what that means, that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here we are, Matthew 6, uh, verse number 10. Uh, I do not have time to go all the way through the context and what we've covered already, but there's a lot of context before you get to this passage of Scripture. If you weren't here for those sermons, I encourage you to go listen to those and, and check those out. But you get to verse number 9, Jesus says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. So it's not necessarily the words that you pray. It's the, it's the way that you are supposed to pray. However, I will say, in case it's unclear, that it's not wrong to memorize these words. It's not wrong to pray these words exactly verbatim as long as they are from a heart that is reflective and looking at them. And Jesus says, don't do this vain repetition, but it, it's okay to pray the words verbatim. But he says, here's really the manner you should pray. Here's the address, our Father which art in heaven. So our together, our heavenly Father. And then he says, hallowed be thy name. We covered that last week. That's the first petition. That's the first request of this of this prayer is that lord uh let us regard your name as holy may may our culture at large that's that's oftentimes blasphemous may may it regard your name as holy may your name be made great in my life and in my family and that's the first petition then you come to verse number 10 and we get to the second petition which is thy kingdom come and then the elaboration of that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven now, thy kingdom come is three words, and they're pretty simple words, thy kingdom come. But for us as modern Americans, 21st century, these words are deeply complicated for us. <clears throat> it seems simple that we could just talk about those three words, but they are complicated, and they're complicated for a couple reasons. So the first reason that these words are complicated is that we have a really weird relationship with sovereignty, just as, as modern 21st century American people who live in the Pittsburgh area, we have a really, really weird relationship with sovereignty. So on the one hand, we are the people that have this profound aversion to sovereignty, meaning we are American. We're the nation that rejected sovereignty. We're the nation that said no to the monarchy, to a king or a queen ruling over us. We are the people that declared no taxation without representation. I know you didn't, you didn't declare that, but our American forefathers declared that. We are the people that said, don't tread on me. We are the people that said, we serve no sovereign here. That those were our battle cries. That was, what we, that was the heart of our American forefathers was to, to create a system. And in our minds, we came up with a better system. We came up with a republic where we have representation, where we don't have this uh, monarch ruling over us, and we don't have a sovereign, so to speak. And, and beyond the political here, this is further complicated for us because 
in our own lives, we reject a, a sort of sovereignty and people ruling and reigning over us, and we embrace liberty. We embrace autonomy. We will say no and disregard relationships, deep relationships with people that we love, with our own family, out of a heart of to get some of my own liberty. We have a culture that by and large does not know what it means to honor father and mother because that may mean that I limit my options and that my personal autonomy is, is suppressed and decreased if I choose to put them first, if I choose to honor them. We have a political system where we elect, we have a say, we elect representatives, and if we don't like those representatives that are elected, then we make sure the whole world knows about it, and we make sure that we protest or we post on Facebook or we say something. So that's, that's just in our relationships. That's just with our family. That's just with our political system. That's not even talking about an actual sovereign, someone who can make a unilateral decree without consulting you, without any representation and say, this is the way it is, like it or lump it, I rule, ha, ha, ha. We, we hear something like that we think of maybe having a political system like that, and we bristle at it. That goes against our grain just because of the, the social context that we've grown up in. And we would say, you know, hey, have you seen a statue of, of sovereignty in, in some harbor? Nope. We got a statue of liberty, baby. That's who we are. We're, we're Americans. Uncle Sam shakes his fist at the monarchy. We are people. That it's, not, it's not you the king. It's we the people, right? This is us, that you can't tame an eagle, and we're all American eagles, you know? That's, that's who we are. And I don't actually know if you can tame an eagle or not. I just said that. But that is, that's how we, we have this aversion to sovereignty, just as Americans. We do. That's not right or wrong, I don't think, necessarily. It's just who we are. Now, on the other hand, it gets more complicated and more weird because we have a strange attraction to sovereignty, our children's books are filled with what? Kings and queens and princes and princesses and sovereigns who reign. Even, not just the kids, even as adults, we have weird infatuations with the royal family from England. Like we rejected them, but we are completely enamored by them. We, some of you just a few years ago, you tuned in to watch the wedding of William and Kate. You didn't go to your cousin's wedding an hour away, but you tuned in to watch William and Kate at, I don't know what time it was, like 3 in the morning, to watch this with your, with your kids. Just this week, I was, I was doing, I was thinking about this and chewing on this, so I jumped on royal.uk, which tells you all about the royal family. And in some weird way, I'm enamored by, like, Queen Elizabeth is opening an elephant habitat. I don't care anything about elephant habitats, but I'm like, oh, she's, I wonder what she wore for Easter. And I'm looking at a little hat, and her, you know, it's crazy. Some of you were, you were deeply captivated by the life and the death of Princess Di not too many years ago. We have, we have this attraction to it, weirdly. Some of you in this room have had these dreams and these visions of grandeur where, where you were a sovereign, where you were, you know what I'm talking about, right? In your own mind, you pictured I'm, I'm ruling on my throne, goblet in hand, there's like this tiger on a big chain next to me, people are like dropping grapes in my mouth. You don't act like you've never imagined that, right? You've thought that would be cool if I was a sovereign, I could say whatever I wanted. So our relationship with kingdom, with kings, with sovereignty, it's weird. It just is. We're... We have this aversion to it, and we're a little bit repulsed by it, but at the same time, we're really attracted to it, and we don't, 
we don't know what to do with this. So it makes thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. It makes it complicated for us. And beyond that, beyond just our normal social how we're, how we're made, we also have, this is weird because Jesus' audience knows a little bit about what he's talking about. I would say it this way. Kingdom theology is baked into Jesus' audience that is not baked into most of us. Not some of you it may be, but most of us as Christians, we don't talk a lot about the kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament and the kingdom that still is waiting and that will come one day. They have this outline of the kingdom. His audience does naturally already. And when he says thy kingdom come, they know what he's talking about. And sure, Jesus has to color that outline in a bit at times. He oftentimes is a parable where he'll tell them the kingdom of heaven is like unto this or that. And he'll, he'll color it in a little bit, but they at least have a foundational knowledge of kingdom theology. They have this, this understanding already pre-baked into them that, that there's this baseline of knowledge that he is assuming they have. When he says thy kingdom come, he assumes that they know what he's talking about. And they do know what he's talking about. They've, they've, they've heard of the prophecies. They know some of that. It would be like this. If, if one of you in this room after, after uh, church this morning asked me, hey, can we get dinner this week? And I said, you know what? Let me look at my schedule. Da, da, da. You know what? Can I take a rain check? Now, 99% of this room would know exactly what I was saying. You would know what I'd take a rain check means. Now, some of you may know that that is rooted in baseball terminology, that that was you got a ticket to a game, the game was rained out. If the game was rained out, they gave you a rain check or a rain ticket where you could go to a future game. It would be rescheduled and you could go there later. Some of you, you may not know that. You just know that means let's reschedule, let's do it again later. Now, if, if, if I said that or you said that to someone that was English speaking who wasn't American, I don't care if they're British, I don't care if they're European, I don't care if they're, if they're Asian. Someone, eat, someone who's English speaking, if you say, let me take a rain check, they're not going to have any idea what you're talking about. They don't come pre-baked with the knowledge of what a rain check means. Say, I'll take a rain check, and they're going to think, is that in case it rains? Like, is that a name for an umbrella? Is that, are you going to pay with a rain check? Like, is that a new app that you're paying with? A rain check, are you taking it? to dinner? Like, is that the new Uber? They're not going to have any idea what you mean by take a rain check. So in many ways, if I stand up here this morning and just say, let's all pray thy kingdom come, it's like me telling a European, I'll take a rain check. You don't know what I'm talking about. You, you, you many, I can't, many in the room don't have a baseline and a core understanding of what the kingdom is, and Jesus' audience does. They already have that. So this makes this phrase really complicated because I, for, for us to pray this accurately from our hearts, we at least have to understand a little bit about what Jesus is talking about. We, we have to know what the kingdom is and what the kingdom is not. We have to know what the Jews understood that to mean. So uh, half of my job today is to give you kingdom theology. Half of my job is to tell you what this meant to his audience and what this means to us. Then the other half of my job, which is, which is going to be the more, uh, it, it'll be easier to listen to. The second half will be how this applies to us, how we should actually pray this, what this means for our own prayer life. So, so hang with me on the first half because you can't miss this or the second half doesn't make sense. Here is, here's kingdom theology in a nutshell for you. And we can have a whole series of sermons on this, but I'll give it to you in a nutshell. So we're going to start with the Jewish nation. I'm going to give you two millennia of history in about three minutes. So Jewish nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? Joseph ends up in Egypt, and the children of Israel, they end up in Egypt as well. 
Okay, fast forward 400 years. Look how fast I did that. That was like 700 years like that. Fast forward 400 years. And you find that the children of Israel have grown to a mighty nation, but they are in Egypt and they are in captivity. They are in bondage. On the scene steps Moses. Moses leads the exodus. He leads the children of Israel out. They, they wander through the wilderness. This is roughly 1300 B.C. Moses steps off the scene. Joshua steps onto the scene. They, they go into the promised land. They inherit, uh, they inherit the promised land. And if you were to fast forward another 250 years or so, you would find there the children of Israel in the promised land, inheriting the land with no sovereign, no human king reigning over them. And that's the way God designed it to be. God's intention was, I will be your, your sovereign. This will be a, uh, I, will be, I will be ruling as, as your God. I will reign over you. And you find that the elders of Israel around 1000 BC, they come to a prophet named Samuel and they tell Samuel, Samuel, we see these, we see these other nations. Samuel, you're getting old. Your children are rejecting what you're saying. We want a king. And Samuel is taken back by this. Samuel does not like this. Samuel goes to God, and in 1 Samuel 8, he tells God, God, look what they're doing, and here's what the Lord says unto Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. He says, Samuel, they have not rejected thee. Samuel, don't take it personally, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God says their request for a king is that they don't want me to be their sovereign. They don't want me to reign. And Samuel, go back and tell them. They can have a human king. They can have a human sovereign, but it will be to their detriment. So Samuel goes back and he tells them, God wants to reign over you. He gives. He takes care. He supplies. If you put a human king, they will, the word he uses often is take. He'll take. He'll take. He'll take. Don't do this. But they say, no, we want it. Give us a king. So Saul comes. Saul is hot at first, then cold at the end. David comes, and David's hot and cold every other day. He's all over the place. His life's a mess. Solomon comes. After Solomon comes, it's a golden era for the children of Israel. But within two generations after them saying, we want Saul, we want a king, two generations later you find that the nation is in disarray. It splits. It goes northern nation, southern nation, and then the northern eventually gets conquered. And you, if you then fast forward 300 years, you come to a man named Isaiah, a prophet who steps onto the scene of the nation of Israel, and he begins to prophesy two things. One, you will be conquered by Babylon. They will come. They will conquer. Bad news. Two, there is coming. Isaiah begins to prophesy. There is coming a future kingdom. And this kingdom is not just a human reigning over you, but there is coming a future kingdom that will be beautiful, that you long for inside, where oppression will cease and where injustice will cease and where peace will reign and righteousness will reign. And Isaiah begins to prophesy this, and this prophecy is, is echoed through Daniel and through Zechariah, and they elaborate on it some, and, and the Jews begin to latch on to these prophecies of a kingdom that is coming, of, of a reign that will happen that they are looking forward to. I want to share maybe four or five items on the kingdom that, that are in the Old Testament prophecies that they were looking forward to to see what is this kingdom characterized by. What is it? When Jesus says, thy kingdom come, what is this kingdom that they're looking for? What are they yearning for? What are they, what are they praying for? You find first that this kingdom is, is there's someone who reigns. It's a Messiah. He's of Davidic ancestry, and he reigns through God's power. Isaiah 11 says, 
uh, says this, that there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, David's dad. A branch shall grow forth from his roots, that there's coming through Davidic line. There's coming this person who will reign. And he continues in verse number four and five with righteousness. This person will judge the poor. He'll reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He'll smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, faithfulness the girdle of his reins. This prophecy begins to come that through David will be this Messiah ruling through God's power and righteousness and faithfulness, and this person will come. And this kingdom is characterized by peace. Ever heard the phrase, the lion will lay with the lamb? That is from the prophecies of the kingdom that if you keep reading, and we just read Isaiah 11, 1, 4, 5. If you read verse number 6, Isaiah continues and he says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid and the, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. He prophesies in this kingdom there will be a peace that's peace like Garden of Eden-esque. Where there's, there's no longer carnivores, that the, that the animals are in harmony. And not just animals, but, but humans are in harmony. Isaiah 2, he says that he shall judge among the nations and rebuke many people. He, and this is what will happen when this kingdom comes. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That this kingdom ruled by a Messiah through God's power will be, there will be peace in, in, in nature, in, in human relationships. That there's no need for swords and spears and for weaponry anymore. That war will be no longer. It's also prophesied that all the nations against God and his righteousness will be destroyed. Daniel 2, we were there in the fall. We covered Daniel chapter 2. There's this prophecy of this, this statue, a giant statue. Gold on top, then silver, and it moves down through these precious metals. But that statue that represents the kingdoms of men are destroyed by a rock made without hands that God destroys and that fills the whole earth. What the whole prophecy is about. There's a coming kingdom where God rules and reigns over the whole earth. Where his reign is pervasive. Where his righteousness is there. Daniel even prophesied of a resurrection of the dead that happened at the end of this kingdom. Never read the Gospels. I don't know about you, but I wondered this for a long time. You read the Gospels and uh, Matthew, Mark, different ones, they'll talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they'll often say about the Sadducees, they believed not in the resurrection of the dead. I used to read that and think, what's he talking about? Jesus hasn't even died yet. Jesus hasn't even raised from the dead. How could they possibly believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead if Jesus hasn't even died and raised from the dead yet? But he's not talking about that at all. He's talking about the kingdom. There's this prophecy in Daniel 12 that, that all will be raised and some to righteousness and life eternal and some to, to everlasting destruction. But the Pharisees believed that. The Sadducees did not. They held on to the Torah and they rejected Daniel and his prophecies. But there's this kingdom that's characterized by God ruling and reigning through a Christ, through a Messiah, through an anointed one, where his righteousness, his holiness is pervasive, where peace is shed abroad, where, where men and women get along, where oppression and injustice are done, where disease and sickness are done. This is the kingdom that the Jews are waiting for. This is what they're anticipating. This is what they're longing for. And this is what Jesus is telling them to pray for. He's telling them, pray that that kingdom would come. And when that kingdom comes, then the will of God, as it's done in heaven right now, will be done on earth. 
that what he wants, that Satan will be removed, bound. It will be out of the way that his will will be done on earth. This is the instruction that they have. This is what they are longing for. And, and this is something that, that's so potent. I found it in my studies a, a writing. It's not, it's not scripture, but it's a writing uh, called Psalms of Solomon. It sounds like scripture because it has Psalms and Solomon in it, but Solomon didn't write it. Uh, it's Psalms of Solomon, and there's 18 different uh, little excerpts, and, and 17, the 17th one, is written about two generations before Jesus. And it's all about the Messiah that they're looking for. And here are a couple small excerpts from this Psalms of Solomon that Jesus' audience, this is what they would have been expecting. This is what they would have been looking for in their Messiah. It says that, and then he'll be girded with strength, that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, that he may purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her down to destruction. They're looking for someone that will shatter the unrighteous rulers, who will uh, remove those that are oppressing the Jews. They're looking for someone that says that there will be no unrighteousness in his days in their midst. For all shall be holy, their king, the Lord, Messiah. It says he will bless the people of the Lord with wisdom, gladness, and he himself will be pure from sin so that he may rule a great people. This is, this is what the Jews are anticipating. This is what they are longing for. And if you'll hang with me for just one second, I, I want to show you why this, this prayer is so valid and so potent and so important. When Jesus teaches his disciples, pray thy kingdom come. Look for this future kingdom. Pray that it would come. That then his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you're doing this, understand that Jesus and his day and age, they are under Roman rule. Who rules within iron fists. He is teaching his disciples to look for and to pray for a kingdom that is ruled and people reign other than Rome. What does that mean? That means Jesus is putting his head on the chopping block and he's teaching his disciples to put their head on the chopping block in order to pray and look for a future kingdom. So this teaches us that this prayer is not some haphazard, flippant, just pray this just because. This would have to be deeply important for Jesus to teach his followers to put their life on the line. If Rome sniffs any sort of sedition or uprising, they will stamp that out in a heartbeat. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray that way. This is at least part of, if not all of the reason, why several days before Jesus' crucifixion, he rides into Jerusalem, and what do the people do on Palm Sunday as he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey? They throw the palm branches down. They say Hosanna or praise or adoration to the Lord in the highest. And John says that they pray these words, Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. What are they saying? They're saying there is our, there's our King. There is our Messiah who's coming in the name of the Lord. And this is what expedites the plan to execute Jesus. This is what the Jews use as leverage to get him executed. John says in John 19 that Pilate wants to let Jesus go. Pilate tries to get rid of him. He does not want to crucify him. But what do the Jewish leaders say to him? John 19, from henceforth, Pilate sought to release him, Jesus. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. What are they doing? They're taking Jesus' teaching of a kingdom and that he was king and Messiah of that kingdom. And they're leveraging it to say, Pilate, you have to murder him. 
So understand the ramifications of what Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. This isn't small. This, this isn't flippant. These aren't just some words to say. These words carry profound consequences. And there's not a chance that Jesus teaches them to pray this unless it's deeply important. So what does, what does that mean for us? To pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If, that, if I could give you kingdom theology in a nutshell, that's it. That's what these Jews are anticipating. What does, what does this mean for us? I would say it means two things. First and, and foremost is this. It teaches us that there should be a yearning, a longing, a desire for the future that awaits us. What Jesus is teaching his disciples to do is to pray for and to long for and to look forward to a kingdom that is coming. And that kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament is inaugurated with Jesus but still has yet to reach its final culmination. I do not have time to walk through future events, to walk through Revelation 20. You can read Revelation 20 in your own time if you want to that talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth before eternity begins. You, you can do that on your own time, but that kingdom is still valid. That reign through King Jesus is still coming. That time where oppression will cease and justice will be gone, we will, the Bible teaches us, rule and reign with him, under him. That is still coming. The peace, the lion laying with the lamb, the oppression ceasing, the disease stopping, that is still, that's still coming. And this prayer is literally, Father, bring on the kingdom. Father, help it to come. Father, we long for it to be here. Your kingdom is unimaginable what this is going to be. May your will be done on earth as in heaven. Lord, we're looking forward to the day when Satan is bound. We're looking forward to when sin is removed. We're looking forward to where you reign in righteousness, where the lion lays with the lamb. And this prayer is designed for you and for me to cultivate a desire for the future that awaits us based on the promises of the Bible. This prayer is meant for, and I know that this is strange. I know that many in the room don't pray this way. I, for my whole life, haven't prayed this way. I'll be honest. But this prayer is meant to cultivate a desire inside of us for, for what is coming. It's a, it's a prayer of faith that zooms us out from our day-to-day -day and our struggles and our trials and our physical